You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on America Out Loud. I am your host, Randy Sutton. We've got a great show for you. We've got an amazing guest um, waiting in the interview room. Uh, it's very, very powerful, very powerful interview. But let's take a walk into the uh, briefing room where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. America is in the midst of something we have never seen before, and that is the reaction to the coronavirus. We have seen um, a sea change in America during this tragedy. Uh, we have seen an unprecedented um, uh, basically change in, in America. Uh, we have seen massive unemployment begin. We've seen uh, uh, a, uh, a, an incredible government response in, in a way that, that um, is both encouraging and disturbing. When I say that, I mean that the government has stepped in and, and played a massive role in trying to mitigate the coronavirus. And they've taken some very dramatic steps. Well, when the government announces that people shouldn't congregate, that, uh, that uh, stores need to close, that businesses need to shutter their doors, it, it poses an incredible strain on the people who are being affected by this. And who gets tasked with enforcing all of these rules, regulations, and laws? It's local and federal law enforcement. So officers are being um, placed into additional danger uh, by, by simply having to respond to um, incidents where a, they might be coming into contact with someone who is infected with a virus. And generally speaking, these officers are not given protective equipment. Then you also have the incredible strain that, that, that Americans are, are feeling, which leads to uh, uh, emotional issues, which leads to desperation because they've lost their jobs. And who's on the front line? It's the American law enforcement officer. Now, we've already seen um, the first death of a law enforcement officer related to the coronavirus in New York City. Um, it's a, from a, a corrections investigator. And the, the rate of infections in police, of police in New York City has dramatically risen in just a week. Now, what's happening is um, all over the country, police officers are being subjected to this, this threat. And here's my, here's my prediction, and here is what my reaction is. And my prediction is that in many instances, these officers who are, who are being uh, infected with the coronavirus are going to be left to their own devices and be told by their cities and towns that it's not a workers' compensation injury. I can see this happening already because we already, unfortunately, 
the reality is that, that officers who are being shot in the line of duty are not getting the treatment that they should be getting oftentimes. They're getting denials for, um, for workers' compensation for clearly on-the-job injuries. So now you have an infectious disease, and I, I can see it happening right now, that these officers are going to be told, well, prove it. Prove that it, you got it on the job. If not, go handle it with your own private health care. This is going to cause major problems. So I am calling on politicians, law enforcement leaders to act now and and pass bills, pass a law, issue a proclamation, whatever needs to be done to protect these officers right now and issue an edict or issue a, a bill that says it is a presumption that an officer who is infected with coronavirus be treated as if it were a worker's compensation injury. Make it across the board. Do it now because hundreds, if not thousands of police officers around this country are going to get infected. This needs to be done by our police leadership. This needs to be done by our political leadership. I'm calling on them now. This is about all the time we have today because we have a um, uh, someone waiting in the interview room and this is a really critical topic that we're going to be talking about. So I've got to tell you guys about a product and it is a product that um, I've started using uh, much to my um, well my surprise it's a CBD product and it's called Luxfite and uh, I got to tell you I was very hesitant because just you know with my background as a law enforcement officer anything involving CBD I've always shied away from but I was uh, I was approached by a um, retired uh, New York City police lieutenant who is in the business of these uh, uh, Luxvite CBD products. And he explained to me a lot more about it than I ever knew. Now, I've talked to people that have used CBD products before, and, and they rave about them. So um, when, uh, when um, my, my, my friend told me about his products and about the fact that there is no THC in them, and that there are reports available on the internet uh, through this company that that tells about the purity of the product and and the fact that he didn't get into it until he was was very um, cognizant of the fact that this was the best product on the market. He done a tremendous amount of research. So you know what? I started using a couple of the products, and I, I got to tell you, I am shocked at the results now because. It's CBD. You can't go on and talk about the actual effects. Um, I guess that there are some some uh, you know uh, advertising uh, issues involving that. But I got to tell you, I, I'm liking what I am seeing and what I'm feeling. So check it out. It's luxvitecbd.com. That's L-U-X-V-I-T-E-C-B-D.com. Luxvite.com or luxvitecbd.com. They got all kinds of products. I'm not going to tell you which ones I'm using, but I'm using a couple of them, and uh, and it is shockingly good. Check it out, LuxviteCBD.com. If you love coffee as much as I love coffee, in fact, even if you don't love it as much as I do, but you like it, Law Dog Coffee Company is the newest and the greatest coffee company to come along in a long time. Now, all right, I admit... I'm a little prejudiced because 
Law Dog Coffee is a major sponsor of the Wounded Blue. They actually donate 15% of their revenue to the Wounded Blue. And they are uh, a partner of, of the Wounded Blue in a lot of different ways. So, this coffee company is, uh, is law enforcement uh, based. It supports law enforcement. But most importantly, the coffee is amazing. I, I love it. I mean, it's, uh, it's rich. It's uh, uh, organically grown. It's ethically grown in, uh, in Costa Rica. It is uh, um, roasted by a family roasting company. It's been in business for 90 years. Uh, it's rich. It is delicious. And it gets delivered directly to your door. It's uh, subscription-based. You can have one pound, two pound, 20 pounds, however much you want, delivered right to your door and, uh, and get a taste of this amazing coffee. So go to lawdogcoffee.com. It was one word, lawdogcoffee.com. And, and also, by the way, they get some amazing gear, uh, T-shirts and mugs and hats and all kinds of stuff. Uh, really cool designs. So check it out, lawdogcoffee.com. Tastes so good. It ought to be illegal. There's something very important I want you to do for me. If you've been listening to the Voice of American Law Enforcement for any time, you know that we are very dedicated to the law enforcement community here. I would like you to go to a website. It's www.thewoundedblue.org. I want you to read about how we at this organization are aiding injured and disabled law enforcement officers. If you are a law enforcement officer and you have been injured or disabled and you feel forgotten and alone, this is why we exist. We have a fully trained peer support team, all made of police officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed up. They know what you're going through, and we exist for you. You are the part of the Blue family, and you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. Unfortunately, many police agencies and cities do not treat their officers with respect and dignity when they are injured either physically or emotionally. So go to thewoundedblue.org. If you are a citizen and you want to help, please check out how you can join the Wounded Blue. And if you're a police officer or have been, exist for you. So check out thewoundedblue.org. Now, I would also urge you to see our film. It is on Amazon, it is on iTunes, it's the Microsoft Store, it's pretty much every platform you can imagine. It's called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You would be shocked at how the men and women of this, you know, the law enforcement community in this country, many are being treated with such disrespect. Many people, most people, even cops, believe that if you are severely injured in the line of duty, you're gonna be taken care of financially and emotionally. In many cases, that is not true. Please watch the film and help the Wounded Blue. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L, dot com slash sleep. With me today in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement is Molly High. I've asked Molly to uh, come on the show today. Uh, she has a very unique perspective about a very difficult topic. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about her. Molly is a police widow, not the widow of an officer who was shot to death in the line of duty or killed during a robbery, but uh, a line of duty death nonetheless as I see it, and that is a death by suicide. Um, Molly was uh, married to her husband, Phil, for 14 years. Um, she has a BA in criminology. She also has a master's degree in counseling psychology. Uh, she's very active in an organization that works with police uh, widows who under similar circumstances. And I really appreciate um, her coming on the show today. Molly, thanks so much for being on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Thank you for having me. You know, you and I had a, had a brief discussion yesterday. And um, it's a, it was a very difficult discussion for you to have, I understand. But your perspective is so important for my audience to hear. My audience consists of law enforcement officers, their families, their spouses, and, and, and people who support law enforcement. And you and I had a very frank discussion. First of all, let's get a little bit into, into your history, you know, who you are. And then let's talk about, um, you know, Phil and your marriage, and then get into, you know, the, the terrible topic that we, that we came here to talk about. So tell me a little bit about yourself and about, about Phil. Well, I'm 42 years old, and I have a 16-year-old son. Um, I was married to Phil, as you said, for 14 years, and we were very passionate about helping law enforcement, first responders, military veterans, which he also was an army vet, dealing with PTSD. And our goal was to counsel people suffering from PTSD. And he was also pursuing his master's degree in counseling psychology, and he would have graduated in May. Um, it's unfortunate that the very thing he was trying to help um, took his life. Um, since he passed away, um, it was two months ago on Saturday, um, 
he shot himself in our home while my son and I were there. Um, my son had to call 911 while I attempted CPR, but it was useless. Um, we've since, we left our home that night. We haven't been back. We lived in hotels for three weeks until we could find a rental. Um, we live in a very small town, so there wasn't a lot of privacy through those beginning weeks. Um, Let's, okay. I mean, this is still so very fresh. I mean, we're mm -hmm. only, we're only talking two months ago. Um, tell me a little bit about, about, uh, Phil's police career and, um, and the department. We don't have to mention the name of the department, but let's talk about, um, you know, the size of the department and his police career, what he thought about policing. Um, he began his career um, as a deputy sheriff in an area in southern Idaho. Um, he started as a dispatcher for a year, and then he went to the jail for a year, and then he did four years of patrol down there. Um, he moved up to the, the area. We're in a small town in, in Washington State, and he moved up here, and that's when we met and got married. And he worked for our local department for three years until there was a series of layoffs with the city and he went to the next city 20 miles away and he worked there for 10 years um, the day of his service would have been his 10-year anniversary with that particular department so he, he had how many years in law enforcement at that time 21 so 21 years as a cop several different departments um, he was in the uh, military before that how long was he in the military he was in for eight years, and the last two, he was military police for the reserve unit that he was in. Had he ever been uh, deployed to combat areas? No, but there were there were some incidents that occurred um, during trainings that were quite quite disastrous. Um, when he was when he was in active duty, there was a situation where they were doing some exercises and they went and got into two helicopters and the one that Phil was in successfully took off. The other one crashed and everyone was killed. Oh um, boy. So, so there were, there were some incidents in training that were, they were pretty traumatic um, for him. And during his, his career as a law enforcement officer, um, he county that he patrolled was very large and very rural and a lot of straight stretches. Uh, there was a lot of, of fatalities on that road, and he was a crash reconstructionist in Idaho, which he also became certified uh, level four here in, in Washington State. Um, he was also an arson investigator and, and dealt with some deaths with that as well. So there were. It seemed like he got his his own more than his own fair share of of some pretty brutal calls. And when we first got together, he was very passionate about his career in law enforcement and as the years went on and the more he saw and the more he did um i could i couldn't imagine him doing any other job i mean he just seemed to have been born for it and he had such a passion um but probably about four years ago i started realizing that that was that was changing and he wanted out and he he didn't want to do it anymore and that's when he started going to school for his, his second career. Uh, so you, he was, supposed to, so he was you, supposed to retire on February 29th, and he died on January 14th. It's, it's, it's almost unfathomable to be that close 
to retirement and then decide to to take your own life. I mean, from a you know a, a perspective of law enforcement, you know, this is this is what you know we 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 work for and we dream of, and to be that close. But let's get let's get back to you said that about four years ago you started noticing a difference and that difference, how did that difference manifest itself? He was, I wouldn't say reluctant to go to work, but he no longer, you know, jumped out of bed and, and was eager to get, get to the station and, and get on the road. Um, it's just his whole, his whole attitude changed. He, he just wasn't passionate anymore. And over time, became increasingly worse and he became distant from me. Um, there were times when we'd be on car trips, you know, 10 years ago and we'd be talking so much that we would miss turns or, you know, go the wrong way or, or forget to do something. Um, but by the time I started noticing this, we could be in the car together for two hours and, and not say a word. Um, he started really pulling away from everything and everyone. And I initially thought that it was the stress due to school. He was very much a perfectionist, um, you know, had to get straight A's. And so I mistakenly attributed it to, to stress. But I also knew that because he had wanted this career change that, um, that he was done with law enforcement. He just needed, he, he was very passionate about being the provider for our family and he knew that he had a good job that had good benefits and that we would be well taken care of while he transitioned into something else. And that was one of his biggest concerns was to make sure that, that my son and I were taken care of. Um, but by the end, he was taking all of his meals in his office. I, he would come out every once in a while just to get something. Um, he stopped sleeping. He was started having anxiety. Um, and that's when I realized that there was a problem and I had actually, uh, broken my arm last fall and had to have surgery and he stayed home with me for six weeks and he was a completely different person than the person I had been living with for the last four years. His sense of humor came back. He started sleeping. He was funny again. He was engaging. He was compassionate. Um, and it dawned on me, there's something wrong here. Suddenly he's not working and he's back. I have my husband back, the, the man that I fell in love with and enjoyed 10 years with. And I talked to him about PTSD and he adamantly denied that he had it. And, and, th and this, is, this is a man who, who understood um, what PTSD is. I mean, he... He, under, right. he understood it on a, at least an intellectual level because of, of his, uh, of his education and experience. But, but he, are you, is it your thought that, that he simply had, he didn't want to admit that he himself was, was, was suffering? I don't know that he believe really truly believed that he was. Um, 
because he was putting it into little cookie cutters and saying, well, I'm not having flashbacks and I'm not doing this and I'm not. And I said, that's, that's not at all, you know, the, the end all and be all of PTSD. There's so many other things. And I did um, talk him into going to a treatment program. Um, he wouldn't go to a 30 day program. He went to a four day, more like a retreat where they did really intensive work 16 hours a day on trauma. And I had gotten him home on Sunday night and he killed himself on Tuesday while I was in the process of trying to, he admitted that he needed a longer program. And I was trying to get him on a plane somewhere by that weekend when he died. Um, what I believe happened was that he finally admitted that there was a problem, but it opened up so many wounds and then they put him on a plane home and he was worried that he, he couldn't get into a program. He, I think, I think he was just overwhelmed. Like he, he came home and, you know, now he, he knows he's facing at least 30 days of, of hard work and he wouldn't have probably gone back to work. Um, he would have hit his retirement date while he was in treatment. Um, so I really truly believe that, that it just, because it, his, his, Suicide was extremely spontaneous. Um, he had told me when he got home from treatment that he would never do that. He's seen it. It, it destroys people. And he promised me. And two days later, we're talking about him getting into treatment. And I, I kept telling him, you know, you just got to pick one. We don't have time to, to mess around here. You've got you've to get somewhere quick because I think we're at a critical stage right now. And so we were arguing about that. And um, I left the office, which was across the hall from our, our bedroom. And I got down the hall and I heard our bedroom door slam and I heard the gunshot. So it was very, very spontaneous. And I think that the, the hard work that was looming in front of him had a lot to do with this. But unfortunately, he took, he took all his thoughts and a lot of his secrets with him. And I, I'll never have those answers. I have, I have looked through every piece of paper in his office. I have looked under the seat in his car. I have drilled into safes that I didn't have a combination for, hoping somewhere there was going to be like this, this answer for me. And it just simply doesn't exist. That, so I, I don't know that, what was going on with him that night. That's my best guess. Um, but. He took, he took it with him. I can't mm -hmm. even imagine the thoughts that are going through, that went through your mind that night and, and in the ensuing couple of months. I mean, how, how has it affected your son? He's doing fairly well. We are in counseling. Um, when we were living in hotels, I told him, you know, whatever you want to do, I said, we've lost control of so much in our life that we need to take the things that we do have control over and, and really focus on those and, and look at whatever positives we have. Um, so if he wanted to go stay the night at a friend's, that friend's house was more familiar than where we were. Um, I wanted to keep things as normal as possible. Uh, he took a, a week off of school. I, I say normal as possible. There's nothing that's been normal. Um, sure. I took a week off of school. 
Um, like I said, we're, we're a small town and I've got eyes on him in the community, at school. Everybody's watching him. His teachers are all cued in. I know all of these people. And he's got a great support system. He's got amazing friends. And I would rather him be out with friends than here listening to me on the phone as I call one more person to explain what, what happened and why I need to change the name on this bill or, or try and make arrangements to, cause I, I lost my source of income um, to, to not get myself in more financial trouble than I'm already in. Um, right. And now they're out of school for six weeks. So I, re, you know, the times that I would normally be making these phone calls, he's been hanging around. So I in, encourage him to, to be with his friends and, and get that support because it's there it's keeping the things that are important to him stable and consistent and sure. i think that that's really helped him and that um phil was his stepdad although he'd raised him since he was two um but i think he probably felt himself distanced from phil a little bit in the last few years because of the way that, that Phil was isolating himself from us and you know I I think he's gonna be fine um I'm I'm impressed with his resiliency and his compassion for me and we have a, a very good relationship and I you know I told him if there's anything that you want to say to me you, you know, let's just be honest about it and that's worked out very well for us so I'm, I'm encouraged by him and I know he worries about me, but he'll come to me and say, mom, I feel like you're getting better every day and you know, we're going to be okay. And I said, yeah, we are going to be okay. It's just going to take time. And I said, and I'm still going to cry. I'm still going to be mad and that's never going to change, but every day will be a, another step to our future and when we had to find a new place to live i told him it was his decision because i didn't want him pulling in the driveway and saying this is where we're staying or this is where we're living right now i said i want you to feel like this is truly your home and i let him make this decision because i need him to feel like he has some control and that he's not in a place that he feels uncomfortable. I mean, we, we've had to downsize a lot. We went from a 2,800 square foot house to an 800. So we're kind of stepping over each other right now. Sure. But, you know, as he was saying, mom, we can clean this house in 30 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> we both agreed we wanted to simplify and, and have less stuff and just make our life easy. And I said, you know, we're making the rules now. It's, this, this is you and me. And, you know, if we decide we want tacos every Wednesday for dinner, we're going to have tacos every, you know, whatever we want to do. It's about starting a new chapter, just the two of us. Right. Let's talk about some of the realities that you've had to face. Some of the rather stark and maybe surprising and harsh realities about the, the way people have treated you. I mean, first of all, how big is the police department that he served with? I believe there's about 20, if you count um, the administrators and sergeants and patrol. Uh, there's, I believe there's six in the jail, but they, they didn't have that much, you know, contact with each other. I mean, they, they spoke, but they weren't 
the jail opening was actually fairly recent a few years ago so there wasn't that 10-year bond with with the jail crew because a lot right. of them would come in and do their time and then get hired on and go to the police academy so so i would say 26 in the department 20 okay so we're, we're talking a, a, a smaller agency where everybody knows everybody and and oh absolutely and he served with uh with these men and women for for many years um tell me about what happened i mean how that how it played out um on the the the, when, the night that he killed himself so the the department here in the town we live in responded um and like i said it's it's about a half hour drive from from phil's department that he was with and i swear his sergeant was there within 15 minutes he must have gone a million miles an hour to get there um, but everything is a little fuzzy still um so that sergeant was there for a few hours well the local jurisdiction couldn't take over the investigation because Phil had worked with them so we had to wait for the sheriff's department to come out so that was several hours by the time I finally got out of the house and was taken to a hotel um, he, he died at 11 o'clock and I got to the hotel at 6 in the morning um, that was the last time that I heard from anyone at his department until one week later when the chief finally called me wait a and, minute hold on a second hold on a second you're telling me that nobody on his police department, the chief or the administration, had no contact with you for a week after after this terrible incident? Correct. Um, I called the sergeant that was there that night, and he and the chief both told me the same thing, that um, we're all grieving with our families right now, and you need to do the same. And I told him, I said, you know, I've been married to law enforcement for 14 years and all I hear is thin blue line, we got your back, you know, the, the blue brotherhood. And I said, so um, I, I thought you were my family. And the contact that I have had with the department since then has mostly been initiated by me unless it was a phone call to say, um, or usually it's a text, I don't get many phone calls. Um, but to say so-and-so is calling you about this particular thing, or you know, we checked with the city and you don't qualify for his death benefits because he committed suicide. You know, In the beginning, there was a few phone calls like that. Um, after kind of the details were addressed, I was contacting them to find out when can I get his personal items and Oh, well, we haven't done that yet. Well, can you can you tell me when you are? Because by by this point, we're over a month past him passing, and the the entire department did come to the service, um, but I only talked to one or two of them. Um, you know, these are these are guys that I went to their their children's baby showers, and our sons had sleepovers together, and we went on vacations with and we've raised children together and not one single wife has initiated any contact. Um, I was finally able to go get my husband's items from the department, um, but they had his, his rifle 
And I said, why, where is that? And they said, oh, well, it's locked up in the armory. And I said, well, I would like to get it. I just kind of need to be out of this department. I don't need to keep coming back for this, that, and the other thing. Um, so yet another trip, I was finally able to get that a week ago. And things are missing from it. The, the soft case is missing and, you know, just, just all kinds of things. But, you know, when I walk in there, the way that they treat me, it's, I don't know if they think it's, contagious or or what it is but um i definitely don't have a family there and i definitely don't belong there and i tested it with a, two guys that i thought would definitely respond to a text and neither one of them did and so i'm quite clear on the fact that that i'm not family and in one of the text exchanges with the chief the last one that i had with him i said you know I don't know what Adrian and I did to be treated this way. Phil's the one that committed suicide. We haven't done anything wrong and you guys have abandoned us. And he said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And that was in a text message. And that was it. That was it. Personally, I find that disgusting. Personally, professionally, I find that a, a, a law enforcement leader who, who treats the widow of one of his officers who died in any set of circumstances with, with this kind of, uh, it, it's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. I, in fact, on behalf of the most of law enforcement, I apologize to you because this is not the way it is meant to be. This is not even honorable conduct. And it embarrasses me as a, as a law enforcement professional that you should be subjected to this kind of treatment. You know, you know it's the realities of, of losing a loved one, the, the harsh realities of, of not just the, you know, the, the emotional impact, the traumatic uh, impact, but then the practicalities of, of having to now remake your life and deal with the bureaucracy of, of the, this type of death. It's, it's difficult enough under the best of circumstances. Have you been given any guidance whatsoever? In what respect? Have you been given any guidance in, in how, to, how to negotiate through the legalities, through the, the, uh, uh, the, the um, you know, looking for whatever benefits might be available to you, whatever life insurance, whatever, you know, the practicalities. Has anybody stepped <laughs> in to say, you know, let me give you a hand with this? Oh, no. I, I received a packet in the email or in the mail from the police department with my COBRA paperwork for my health insurance. Um, I received a letter uh, denying me all benefits. I... He had, uh, Phil had private life insurance. He opted out of the department's life insurance. However, he quit paying it um, three years ago, which I didn't know. And I, I didn't know that he had opted out of the insurance with the department as well. Um, so I had, I had paperwork to fill out insurance, life insurance. But um, if you look at his packet, it, 
all you had to do is look at it and see that life insurance wasn't checked. So there was all this paperwork, but nobody, nobody looked at it to see if I even needed it. Um, so no, I haven't, I, I did have the chief at week six, um, talk with someone in human resources because his retirement, I, I had talked to his retirement system. Um, and they had told me they would have a letter out in two weeks. Well, now we're at week six. And, and when I had told the, the chief that it was taking so long, he said, well, that's not right. I, you know, I'll, I'll make a phone call for you. And I had the letter that day. So, um, so that's basically the only assistance, but I had to, you know, like I said, I've had to initiate the contacts and ask for what I need and, and I get the absolute bare minimum. I mean, this department knows that I have a broken arm. I can't lift things and not one person offered to come help us move or, you know, so, so even, you know, that sort of thing, but, but not even any emotional support. So I would say I've, I've gotten so little, um, I'm, I'm more angry than anything and a little bit disgusted because they know, as we know, that they spend more time together than they spend with their spouses because of shift work. And, you know, they may have only worked three twelves, but if they were on nights, they were sleeping during the day and then gone in the evenings and it's, I, I don't understand how they could just turn their backs on my son and I. That makes, and, that makes two of us. That makes two of us. One um, of the other things is, is the chief and other officers. I've heard this through third parties um, that they say, you know, we didn't know anything was wrong. And I say, that's absolutely not true because the chief, rode with my husband and said, hey, you're withdrawing. Everybody's noticing this. You come on shift. You leave for 12 hours. You, nobody sees you. What is going on with you? And that was six days before he went to treatment. And I had spoken with the chief at that time about the treatment program because I said no one who's in crisis should have to do the amount of footwork that I had to do to get him there and financially to come up with that kind of money out of pocket in six days um i told him i said i'm going to send you an email with all the resources that i use to get to where i'm at so them saying that they didn't have a clue that anything was wrong is incorrect they did, were very did, much aware that there was something wrong and did, had i known how he was behaving at work i may have picked up on stuff a little bit earlier but there was my professional work, you know, my husband's professional self and then his at-home self. I didn't know what was going on at work. I didn't know he was doing that. Sure. And, and did, did, the, did the chief, after he came back, I mean, did the chief know that he was at a retreat because of his emotional state? Yes. Did he offer any resources to help? No. As a matter of fact, when um, Phil was at the retreat um, that Saturday, the chief texted me and said, hey, did you email me that stuff? I haven't seen it. That was the closest I got to, how are you guys doing? 
and you know even getting Phil to get on that plane was horrific he was terrified of going there and he he was it was absolutely awful everything about this is awful everything about this Molly is just is 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 horrendous so I know that this is still fresh I know this is literally only been been a couple months um you've been you've been searching for support and you've received some from um our friends over at blue help correct they've been Uh, amazing tell a little bit about about what that organization has done for you well first of all let me say that um the women in that group were a member of the shittiest club on earth i don't know if i could say that or not but um it's not a place you want to be but if i have to be in that club i couldn't ask for a more amazing group of beautiful strong women there's there's no limit to what we can talk about um we're very open with each other and there's some that have been going through this process for many years there's another wife who lost her husband a week after i did um so we have some veterans, if you will, in there to tell us, you know, you know, the year of firsts and, you know, what to watch for and, you know, to, to not be afraid to, to reach out. And you can get on there on the Facebook page at two o'clock in the morning and find somebody to talk to. Everybody is so loving and supportive of each other, regardless of where they are. In, in their loss, whether it was, you know, two months ago or if it was, you know, 14 years ago. Um, they're, they're there, the administrator is there, they check in on their people. Um, one of the things that I was very shocked about was that about a little over 90% of the widows of suicide in this group have had very similar experiences to mine. I believe there was only two in the group whose departments stood behind them and are still there for them, regardless of the amount of time. So this isn't just this isn't just my story. This is their story too. Yeah. yeah we, a lot of that. most of us share that in common, and it's a good place to go vent. Um, they are trying to get a suicide wall in DC. And this is the second year that they're taking widows or widowers, depending on just what kind of year we've had. Um, but right now I think it's all widows and their, their children to DC. Um, they have a big dinner on the Sunday night that the week starts to recognize that even though they weren't in the line of duty, their jobs took their life and we need to be rec- they need to be recognized because they sacrificed too. You know, there's that, there's that old adage about it's not the way they died. It's the way they lived. Exactly. Every one of these men and women who, who took their own life also served for year upon year upon year. And really that's that's what needs to be remembered is the way that they 
they conducted themselves throughout their life of, as a life of service. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I know this has been a very difficult conversation to have, Molly, and I, I, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to be on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. And, um, you know, I want to continue to, uh, you know, stay in touch with you. Mm-hmm. Um, Blue Help is a great organization. I urge my my listeners to check them out. And uh, Karen Solomon, who created that organization. Is, is amazing. <laughs> she's doing great work. She is. And uh, so, you know what? Um, I wish you nothing but the best. I, I know you have a long, hard road ahead of you. But there are people that care. I can guarantee you that. There's a, there's, there, there is a blue family that does care. And I can tell you as the, you know, the, uh, uh, an individual who is, you know, you know, working with a charitable organization like the Wounded Blue, who also, you know, has seen a great deal of service and sacrifice and seen the way officers are being treated, uh, even the officers themselves, after they are no longer useful to their agencies. I wish that this was an aberration, uh, but this is something that law enforcement needs to take seriously, needs to take the blinders off and and realize that the sacrifice that the families make of our officers is dramatic. And then when something is horrible and horrendous as the death of a of an officer, whether that whether that death is a line of duty death, a natural death, or even a suicide death, deserves respect, deserves compassion and empathy. And that's mm-hmm. what we all need to fight for. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Molly. Can I say something in closing? Absolutely. I'm not going to make this long, but one of the most profound things for me was the way that, that people saw Phil pulling away and so they did the same. And so if there's somebody out there who's always there and suddenly they're not, please check on them. Something is wrong. And there needs to be a lot more outreach, education, understanding, so that spouses know what to look for, that coworkers know what to look for. And we need to stop punishing these people for what they're going through in their heads. We need to help them. We need to open our hearts and our minds and our ears, and we need to be there because one is too many, but it's happening at an alarming rate. I think we're at 42 for the year. I'm not sure. Phil died on January 14th and he was the 16th of the year. So just watch out for each other. And if somebody's pulling away, try and find out why. That's I, that's that is a huge point, and I I couldn't I couldn't say it any better than that. Once again, thank you for being on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. End of watch with Randy Sutton. Each week on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. Unfortunately, I have five names to read. Police Officer Brent William Perry Scrimshire, 
of the Hot Springs Police Department in Arkansas. Police officer Brent Scrimshire was shot and killed while conducting a traffic stop in the 100 block of Kenwood Street at approximately 6.30 p.m. During the traffic stop, Officer Scrimshire and a subject in the vehicle exchanged gunfire and both sustained gunshot wounds. Both were transported to a local hospital where Officer Scrimshire succumbed to his wounds. Officer Scrimshire served with the Hot Springs Police for six years. He had been recognized as Regional Officer of the Year by the Arkansas Attorney General in 2016 and had recently been recognized as the Hot Springs Police Department's Officer of the Quarter. Police Officer Brent William Perry Scrimshire Hot Springs Police Department, Arkansas. End of watch, Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. The second is Corporal James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Pennsylvania. Corporal James O'Connor was shot and killed during a SWAT team operation to arrest a homicide suspect at 5.50 a.m. The SWAT team was securing the home on Bridge Street near Duffield Street when the subject opened fire on them through a closed door on the second floor. Corporal O'Connor was struck in the shoulder in an area not protected by his vest. Corporal O'Connor was transported to Temple University Hospital, where he succumbed to his wound 20 minutes later. Corporal O'Connor served with the Philadelphia Police for 23 years, been a member of the SWAT team for 15. He is survived by his wife and two children. One of his sons also serves with the Philadelphia Police Department. Corporal James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Pennsylvania. End of watch. Friday, March 13th, 2020. Police Officer Christopher Walsh, Springfield Police Department, Missouri. Police Officer Chris Walsh was shot and killed as he and another officer confronted an active shooter at a convenience store on East Chestnut Expressway. Dispatcher had received numerous calls about shootings at various locations throughout the city between 11.24 and 11.43 p.m., including one reporting a vehicle crash and shooting at the convenience store. Officer Walsh and another officer arrived at the scene and immediately engaged the shooter. Both officers were shot in the ensuing exchange of gunfire. Additional officers who arrived on the scene extricated both officers, transported them to the hospital, where Officer Walsh passed away. The subject committed suicide before being taken into custody. Prior to exchanging shots with the officers, the man shot four citizens inside of the store, killing three of them. Officer Walsh was a U.S. Army veteran and served with the Springfield Police Department for three and a half years. He is survived by his wife and daughter. Police Officer Christopher Walsh, Springfield Police Department, Missouri. End of watch, Monday, March 16, 2020. Senior Deputy Christopher Corzillius of the Travis County Sheriff's Office in Texas. Senior Deputy Christopher Kazilius was killed in a vehicle crash in the 7700 block of Rural Motor Route 2244 at 6.50 a.m. His unmarked department vehicle collided with another car and overturned, trapping him inside. He succumbed to his injuries at the scene. Deputy Corzilius had served with the Travis County Sheriff's Office for four years and was signed to the vice unit. Senior Deputy Christopher Corzilius, Travis County Sheriff's Office, Texas. End of watch Wednesday, March 18th, 2020. Deputy Sheriff Kentarius Taylor of the Bibb County Sheriff's Office in Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Kentarius Taylor was killed in a single vehicle crash near the intersection of Forsyth Road and Napier Avenue while responding to a burglary in progress call at 1.30 a.m. 
His patrol car left the roadway, struck a wall, and overturned several times. Deputy Taylor was ejected from the vehicle and suffered fatal injuries. Deputy Taylor had served with the Bibb County Sheriff's Office for one year, had previously served with the Fort Valley State University Police Department for two. Deputy Sheriff Katerus Taylor, Bibb County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. End of watch, Wednesday, March 18th, 2020. All of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving and protecting. May they rest in peace. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, where we bring you everything about law enforcement from a law enforcement perspective. A couple things. If you are on Facebook, please come to my page. That is the voice of American law enforcement and like it and follow it. Also, um, since you're going to be on Facebook anyway, go to the Wounded Blue and uh, like that and follow that as well. If you're a Twitterer, I'm at LT Randy Sutton. And um, I think that about covers my social media presence. I do want to hear from you. I'd love to hear from people that have uh, ideas about stories, about things you want me to cover. I try to be as responsive as I can. And uh, anyway, I I really do appreciate you tuning in to Blue Lives Radio. And, you know, uh, we've been on the air a little over three years now. And I hear from a lot of my folks that listen to the show that it's, that it's meaningful to you. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.